I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan. Coming to you on a snow-dusted winter evening in the mountains of Utah. Quick word of warning if you're my mom or otherwise sensitive about swearing. This episode does have a bit of foul language. Feel free to listen later when there aren't kids around or to skip to the next one. Now on with the show. My guest this week is graphic designer Lauren Panapinto. Lauren is the creative director and a book designer for Orbit Books, where she has worked on covers for many of your favorite science fiction and fantasy authors, including, by happy coincidence, my own. She's also a vice president at Hachette Book Group and has written and lectured extensively about art and graphic design, both online and in person, at massive conventions, colleges, and art schools. Lauren and I talk extensively about the huge amount of work that goes into creating a book cover, often using the Powder Mage trilogy and Gods of Blood and Powder as examples. We also talk about how Lauren's nerdiness got her into design, how the state of diverse representation helps her stay in love with her job, the importance of self-insert, and why cover trends happen. Enjoy my conversation with Lauren Panapinto. It's nice to have kind of like a a vocabulary or or a or a vocabulary you don't use in public, you yeah. know, things like that. Yeah, or even just that like running like three second delay. I used to work at MTV. And I worked in, in live. So we were doing, um, this is going to date me, but we were working on Total Request Live. So you'd, you'd be doing graphics as stuff was happening live, but the, the feed was like three to five seconds behind. So you, you, you had that like tiny space that you could like censor something or change something or whatever. And it's good to like have that three second delay in your head. Oh, that's, that's actually. Or like on Twitter. Right. That's like super fascinating, actually. Like, so it's really hard. I, I would imagine like, that's not much time to like, like, were you doing like the bleeping or were you just doing the graphics and things like that? No, we weren't doing the censoring. We were doing the graphics. So usually, you know, in advance kind of roughly what you're going to put on the screen, but yeah. a show like TRL was so uh, like sh- weird shit was happening live. You know, I remember one time we had like green day on and they like disappeared in the middle and like, we're trying to do graphics to like cover. And then they like ran across the street in times square to like McDonald's and then ran back. And we're like, Ooh. right. Like, what do we do with this? Oh, what do we do anyway? Oh, that it's, that's such like kind of a, kind of a funny, I mean, I imagine that there's still the same sort of thing with like live news streams and things like that. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's such true. a funny, like artifact of, I don't know. It feels like, you know, like an artifact of like the nineties of, you know, having these live things that, you know, on radio and stuff like that, you gotta, yeah. you gotta be ready to bleep. And- well, award shows, especially our whole like 
season was or, or our whole year was around like the video music awards and stuff and how like there are there are trailers of people and graphic designers outside wherever they were having it like at getting the live streams and doing the graphics on top and then getting them out. so are you, are you literally like designing on the fly or was it something where you had a whole bunch of things ready and you were just had, needed to throw them in you had a whole bunch of things ready that you could just grab okay but like text was a lot of times happening on the fly and stuff like that so i went from the like least amount of deadline and i was like no fucking way to the longest deadline which is publishing which is the land of hurry up and wait you know (laughs) right right i work on things sometimes two to three years before they come out man you know i i've my my career has been you know what around 10 years now and i that still stresses me out that long lead up time because i i feel like by the time a book comes out i've already forgotten what's in it Totally. I know. I think a lot of the the funny bits of of at least book Twitter, book Instagram, book talk, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but but seeing behind the curtain a little bit more with social media, it's so funny because I feel like the fans must just all be so disappointed <laughs> all the time <laughs> to hear like how much is going on, but also like, you know, authors forgetting about what happens in their own books all the time, you know, like cover like yeah. cover design, like we love books or we wouldn't be in this industry. We wouldn't be writing them. We would be covering all this stuff, but like, there's just only so much information you could keep in your head. And I think fans forget that we're not just working on one book at a time. Even authors are rarely working on one book at a time, but me, I have like 50 to a hundred covers on my desk kind of at any time. I was just about to ask that. And that, that just blows my mind. Like that's so many different projects to juggle. Yeah. And now that we're doing, um, Orbit's doing more and more kind of special editions and things like that. And, uh, so those are, you know, instead of worrying about just the jacket or just the cover, you're worried about, uh, you know, sprayed edges and special foils and, uh, you know, interior illustrations. We just did a Witcher, uh, illustrated edition, which was my first book that I've done that like was fully illustrated by multiple people. We did a illustrated edition of Solus, Gail Carragher's first book. Uh, that was fun, but that was with one artist. So it was kind of more of like, you know, a, mm-hmm. like a calm, peaceful journey. Right. N- not as much as a management thing, you know, because you're just dealing with the one person. Yeah, yeah. Witcher was happening and there were nine, eight, nine artists working on it simultaneously. And we were all like trying to get it out the door at the same time. It's like, ah! right. So like in the middle of COVID, no big deal. Jeez. Oh, like, so when you kind of, when you were uh, younger and you were dreaming about going into art of some kind, graphic design and art and things like that, was project management ever on the list of things in your head that you knew you'd have to do? I mean, I don't know if it ever, uh, you know, if I ever thought of it like that, but my journey into art was a weird one because I kept thinking that I wasn't going to be an artist because I was too much of a project manager, huh. you know, cause I didn't have anyone around me. My, one of my grandfathers was an amateur painter and one of my other grandfather was a photographer and he was a photographer in world war II and the uh, NYPD, he was a homicide photographer. So I had those ideas in my head of, okay, well you could be a painter, you can be a photographer or like something about advertising like in my head, I was like, oh, there's some people that do advertising stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and and to me, those were the like fine art or advertising were the only thing or photography were the th- the jobs you could have in art. 
And, um, and then as I got a little bit older, I, I was very into comic books. You know, my high school is down the street from a comic book shop. So I always hung out in there. And then I ended up working for people that know New York. It was Jim Hanley's universe. Uh, and I just hung out there so much that um, Jim Hanley himself started asking if I would work there. Because I mean, <laughs> back in the early 90s, a girl who knew that much about comic books was like a rare commodity, you know, <laughs> um, or not a rare commodity, but like hanging out in your comic book store. It was probably less, uh, less, a, a less welcoming environment. Um, and he just kept asking, and my mom didn't want me to work when I was in high school. Understandably, she wanted me to focus on grades and extracurriculars and stuff. So he asked my freshman year, and then he asked my sophomore year. And finally, by junior year, my mom was like, she. W- he called her and he was like, look, she's hanging out here all the time anyway. We might as well pay her. <laughs> so by that point, I knew that uh, comic books, you know, existed as a person, you know, a job you could have in art, you could draw comic books. Um, but I wasn't great, or it wasn't skill necessarily at that age, but it just like, I would copy, you know, those sets of X-Men cards that would come out, like Jim Lee would do like a whole set of Masterworks, or like Boris and Julie would do a whole set of like Marvel cards, and I would copy them all and draw them and everything. But drawing was never my thing. Meanwhile, I was doing, all my friends were in bands. I was doing their t-shirts. I was doing their posters. I was doing zines. I had a ska punk zine, very embarrassingly. And I had no idea that that was a job. I was literally doing graphic design. I was coming yeah. up with logos for bands and I had no idea that was a job that people could do. And no one in my life that kind of saw this was like, oh, graphic design, you know? So I got all the way to college and I really liked science um, and I really liked art. So I thought I would go for uh, pre-med And then I would either, in my head, I would either be a reconstructive surgeon, which seemed arty to me, or, you know, it's a (laughs) surgeon, but you're kind of artistic. Um, Or my fallback was medical illustrator, because I figured, you know, you got to do all that. And then, (laughs) I mean, I still really like science, but uh, I got to Boston University and I was, uh, you know, looking at all the classes you could take for an art minor and simultaneously hanging out with a lot of kids in the in the punk rock scene in Boston who all went to Berkeley School of Music or Mass Art. And one of my friends uh, happened to be old, a little couple years older than me, but he was in the graphic design, you know, uh, major at Mass Art. And I was doing logos for his band. And he was like, why are you not in graphic design? And I was like, I don't know what that is. And he's like, go back to BU. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm studying for like organic chemistry. And he's like, go back to BU and see if your art minor has any classes in graphic design. So they did. They had two classes in the entire art school for graphic design, but it was only for art majors. And then I had to like go to the teacher, like con my way into the class. Um, but I sh- came in and I brought like literally my like scalpel seats. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but, uh, you know, zines and posters and, and, and logos and stuff. And the teacher was like, oh, yeah, this is graphic design. Sure, you could be in the class. And I took those two classes that BU offered. And then I was like, oh, no, this is this is this is it. I'm, I'm screwed. <laughs> like, so, so I left Boston University. I'm from New York originally, so it, it wasn't far. But I, I came home after sophomore year of BU knowing that I wasn't going back, but I didn't know if I was – I put in for transfers and stuff to art schools in New York, but I didn't know if I was going to get into any of them. But I ended up getting accepted into School of Visual Arts, which I later found out was only because – my grades were high and like the novelty of like a pre-med person coming to art school, like yeah. tickled my Dean. So he was like, sure, let her in, whatever. <laughs> She'll either sink or swim. I don't know. Um, he didn't admit that until I was graduating. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, but then, you know, moved home, commuted from home, uh, went to school visual arts and then school visual arts is, is really good in 
the fact that even today, all of the teachers in graphic design have to be working professionals. So my teachers just hired me because especially coming out of pre-med, like you have a work ethic that maybe not every art school kid has. (laughs) So I was like, this is great. I don't have to do organic chemistry all night. I'll stay up all night and work on a project. That's great. Uh, So I got hired by one teacher to work at Perry Ellis. I was her assistant at Perry Ellis Fashion. And then another teacher hired me to work at MTV. And like, you just kind of bounce around. And eventually um, I got a job through a teacher at school, uh, St. Martin's Press, uh, which was on 23rd Street, like literally three blocks away from School of Visual Arts. And I just, I didn't even finish. I got hired before I graduated. But, you know, SVA is very practical and they're like, just go to work. (laughs) Like, Finish your portfolio, but like, don't go to class. Just like finish work. Right. (laughs) That's that's what I did. And I worked at St. Martin's Press for a year or two. And then I worked at, I transferred to Random House Doubleday and worked there for a little bit. Um, And then kind of around that like bleak publishing year of like 2008, they call it like Black Friday, like a quarter of publishing got laid off. I got laid off, but um, from Random House because Doubleday sold their paperback division and I was the art director in charge of paperbacks. So, Oh man. My creative director is very nice. He's like, I don't want to let you go, but they're literally getting rid of your job. And simultaneously Orbit had been at Hachette, uh, Hachette UK for a long time. And they were, Tim had, Tim Holman, the publisher had just come over to the U S and he was working with Hachette to set up Orbit US and uh, Little Brown is part of Hachette. So Little Brown's art department had been doing Orbit's covers for a couple months. And uh, a friend of mine that went to SCA, Keith Hayes, who's a fantastic book cover designer, had been helping Orbit do their their first couple of covers. And uh, Tim Tim spoke to Keith and asked him if kind of if he would be interested in the the, the job of just doing Orbit or uh, if he knew anyone and he was like, oh, well, I have this friend, you know, she'd be perfect. She's a book cover art director, but she also has Elvish tattooed on her arm. So like, this is your person. <laughs> but I don't, you know, she's a double day right now. Let me talk to her. And that was the week that I got laid off. Oh, dang. That is good timing. You know, I it was just the perfect timing. So Keith emailed me. The book design community is very small. In New yeah. York. So, you know, everybody knows what's going on. So people knew I had gotten laid off and Keith sent me an email like, I have a job for you. Call this man in the morning. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I actually thought Keith was referring to a freelance job. Like, you know, I didn't have work coming in anymore. So I would, you know, help him with some covers or something because yeah. he was working. He was at Little Brown. Um, and I ended up calling Tim Holman, my, the, my now publisher. And we had this long conversation. He had me come in and we had this like three hour interview about book cover trends and sci-fi fantasy and what my history was. And had I really read The Cimmerillion and how I really had I really read Chapter House Dune? Because like nobody gets that far. You know, like, <laughs> um, I had to like prove my geek cred and my art cred. It was very, it was the most intense interview of my life. And then here I am. I've been creative director ever since. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's crazy. It's, it's funny because I think that especially with like art and I, I assume similarly with graphic design, although I'm, I'm sure that both have lots of, uh, uh, both have plenty of opportunities for kind of day jobs. But I, I imagine that both of those things uh, mm-hmm. depend heavily on kind of work for hire and contract work, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, Going in, did you kind of understand that and realize that you may bounce around a lot and you may be just kind of filling in little gigs um, whenever you need to just to make some money? Yeah, there's there's two tracks of of art. There's art, the types of art that that 
in-house jobs exist and there's the type of art that you know you're always going to be freelance. Like illustrators in today's day and age are very rarely in-house jobs. Um, sometimes in film, you know, you're on a film for six months or a year or something like that. Or in video game studios, they tend to be more in-house. But in books, um, the designers tend to be in-house and illustrators tend to be freelance. Um, but designers themselves, like, you know, you kind of like start as a junior designer and get your feet wet. And um, the, you know, the the higher ups kind of do the front cover and your your entry level job, which is what how I learned, was you take that front cover and you make the flaps and the back and the, the back cover and the rest of the, we call it the mechanical. So that's kind of how you learn. You literally learn by taking apart other people's files and seeing how they did things and like, you know, expanding it around the rest of the jacket. Um, And you kind of move up in-house. But at some point you get to kind of this point and sometimes it's senior designer, sometimes it's, you know, associate art director, that like level of where you're not just designing great covers. You also have to start managing other people. And some people love it and stay. And I do because I really thrive on collaboration and like you said, project management. And some people hate it and can't stand it. And they've gotten enough of a reputation at that point that they can go full-time freelance and, uh, you know, and people hire them to work on designs and things like that. So it's nice in that you can kind of like choose your own adventure Mm -hmm. to a degree, um, depending on what industry you're in. That's really fascinating. I, I, it's such a, it's a, such a funny thing because like, like that, the kind of the art industry is so, it's so close to kind of publishing in terms of the way I view it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously your job combines the two, but like it, but like, to me, it's such a close thing so that it feels like, I don't know, in terms of jobs, it's like art is like my next door neighbor. Like, yeah, it's it's such right. a, it's such a, it's such a funny thing, but I know, I know more than a layman about it, but I don't know much I, I'm not anywhere close to professional level. And I find it really fascinating kind of how the mechanism works in ter- terms of like, I was very confused when we first, when I first got uh, taken on by orbit for powder mage and then they came back with my cover and they said, Oh, the, well the, the designer is Lauren. And then, Oh man, I just blanked on who the, uh, the photographer oh, was. Yeah. Uh, Michael Frost and Greg Malika. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And, I, uh, and I was like, wait, multiple people work on it. Yeah. Gene. Yeah. Uh, multiple. And I thought, wait, multiple people work on it. That's, that's strange. I didn't even realize that. I assumed like a cover was like one person that was told to do something. And then they came back and gave it to you. Yeah. Well, what's funny is you, a lot of people think that including my parents and (laughs) at the, not anymore, but you know, kind of at the beginning of my career, you know, but, but if you're thinking about it, you're, you're especially for your powder mage covers, they were photographs. So um, I, I do some amateur photography, but I'm not so good that I could do a whole model shoot and light it properly and then do the post-production and kind of the Photoshop creation and then do design on top of it. So um, yeah, no, it's a team sport for sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, well, and I don't, I, I don't think that most people realize that it's several different skill sets. Mm. Yeah, it is for sure. I think it's confusing because a lot of, designs um, can happen through stock art. So either stock art or found art and, and every designer kind of has like a subspecialty. So I do, um, I'm, I tend to be a little bit more of a pure design designer in which I use a lot of typography and, and, you know, graphics and layout and things. Um, So that's my specialty, but a lot of designers are also kind of illustrators or they do this beautiful hand-drawn type or they're really, really good at uh, photography and they bring that in. So you're always kind of bringing in your, your interests too. 
So a lot of times there are, there are these big stock art sites and a lot that specialize just in book cover art, you know, sites like Trevelyan or Archangel or even Shutterstock. We use places like Shutterstock for like little stuff. Like I need an apple. Yeah. You go get an apple. It's not like a big, beautiful piece that you would use, but like some of the other stock art sites like Archangel or Trevelyan specialize their group of their group. They usually started by groups of photographers banding together and starting a website that just puts all their images on one site and says, these are great for, for book covers, go scroll through them. Um, yeah. And a lot of covers will start there uh, or it'll be like, you know, very rarely is it one image, especially in sci-fi, very rarely is it one a sci-fi fantasy, is it one image that you just pull off the web and just put type on and you're like done. Um, but there might be four or five images put together, bits and pieces kind of composited together. Uh, and then, well, and that happens like one designer does that. But we're standing on the shoulders of the photographers that uploaded those pictures in the first place, usually. So it's always a team sport, even if it's not us necessarily hiring a freelancer to do the the, the, the pieces. Right, right. Yeah. That's it's it's fascinating how much is going into that. That that I think most people, and especially I didn't during early in my career, had any idea. I didn't know I didn't know how minimalistic the photos were. Uh, for the Powder Mage covers until uh, someone at some point, uh, it might have been Davey, it might have been you, sent me kind of like a bunch of the photographs just just for fun. Oh yeah, the raw photos? Yeah, yeah the raw photos. And I was, oh, I think we were discussing what to do, which, what to do for books two and three. And and we mm -hmm. said, oh, we've we've got this massive selection of photos that we all did on one day. Yeah. Let's just use those and build. Yeah, on and it that. was just the guy in the costume, right? And I had and no idea that that was <laughs> all that was photographed. I I had kind of had this impression of oh, they probably did you know backdrops and stuff. And you know, yeah. and for anybody that's listening, if you go look at Promise of Blood, the cover, the throne was not in the in the the shots the he was sitting on just like an office chair i don't know yeah um the curtains were not in the shot the like fancy lighting and the steps and everything it was just the hot dude sitting in a chair right <laughs> that's it yeah and, and it's so funny to realize that and you know i've got i kind of have enough experience from the time of of doing this and looking at these things to kind of be able to look back at that cover and say oh okay i, I now could pick out what is inserted afterwards Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, just did no idea whatsoever. And it was so funny to realize that. Yeah. And you've had, even through your, just your, your Orbit series, you've had kind of the photographer uh, experience, but you've also had the illustrator experience because Tom Tenery, who's a really well-known concept artist for film, uh, did Sins of Empire and yeah. the rest of that series. So, so that kind of almost, to me, that feels more magical because, you know, I look at an artist and I, and, you know, as an art director, I think uh, we can go through that because that was actually a question on Twitter. Uh, you had solicited questions like, what do the different roles do? But um, once you pick an artist, you know, that piece of art doesn't exist. You just give them a whole bunch of details of the book and kind of like, you know, pick out a couple of inspiration images, either in their portfolio and other things. And you say like this, but like this, but a little bit of this. And then they just magic it together. Like, that's amazing, you know. Uh, <laughs> so you've had you've had multiple different experiences of, you know. Um, and Tom is such a professional that like he goes from thumbnail to final very quickly. And, and, and there's not a lot of steps. Some artists, especially artists that are uh, working in actual physical paint. Um, I have them send more uh, status like whips. They're called work, works and work in progress shots to make sure that we're not, especially in oil paint. Like you can't erase oil paint. 
Like that's, that's a pain. So you don't want to go too far and then have somebody say, oh, well, actually his hand should be like this, you know? So you, you, you get a lot more works along the way, but a lot of the digital guys, especially the concept artists who work so, or are used to working so fast would rather kind of send something like a rough sketch. And then if you approve that, they just want to go to final and they're happy to revise whatever you want. Cause it's so easy to paint over and erase and, you know, work with layers and stuff. So, uh, you know, Tom's, images kind of came in i think the sins of i'm looking at the sins of empire over her shoulder but i think it yeah. came in and like we were like make it more sunsetty, and then it was done and we're like okay great hey, <laughs> right, so I'll put right. some time over that <laughs> and and that's so funny because i imagine that there are times that i'm imagine that there's a whole gambit of that and there's got to be times when you get something and you go oh man that's totally way off and yeah Okay. And and maybe it's even exactly what you asked for. And then you see it and realize, oh, that's not working at all. Well, that is a difficulty. And I don't, you know, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but there are people who have. <laughs> oh, obviously not. <laughs> there are, there are my, the hardest thing about my job is yeah. that you're standing between people who speak visual and people who speak word. So you're hiring, <laughs> most of the time you're hiring artists, or even if you're working with artists in-house um, designers, like they speak visual yeah. and the editors and the publishers have gotten where they are because they speak in words, they're verbal. So I have to translate back and forth and kind of like try to, um, you know, manage expectations and translate back and forth either way. I'm just kind of like the UN, you know, between like two really pissed off countries sometimes. Um, <laughs> right. But but the the hardest stage, and this this happens very frequently with an illustrator, is um, an illustrator will send in a thumbnail or a sketch, and and I know what their portfolio looks like. They know what their work looks like. We all can look at that sketch and kind of extrapolate exactly what it's going to be like in final. Roughly, yeah. you're surprised sometimes, but like a little more accurately than necessarily editors or authors or publishers can. So when depending on how big the jump is sometimes between uh, thumbnail and final, there can be a lot of static when the final comes in sometimes and uh, editors and the, the word people are surprised and they're like, Oh, I didn't expect it to look like that. And, and the artist and I are looking at the thumbnail and their portfolio of other work. And we're like, yeah, that looks exactly like who we expected. And, you know, there could be a little bit of like, Oh shit. Yeah. There. Um, it happens a lot with characters faces because usually in thumbnails, uh, the face is not final. There's kind of a hint of an emotion or a look or something. And you realize, and this happens with fans a lot too, um, abstract, the more abstract something is, the more you insert your take on it because it's looser. Mm -hmm. um, and as that gets finaled up, you know, like if you look at a, a gesture of a, of a emotion in a character that's in a sketch, it could be anxious, it could be excited, it could be heroic, it could be evil like that you fill in what you expect it to be but then when you see it in final that emotion is there and it, there might be some dissonance you know there yeah um so that's always a that's always a bit of a harrowing stage sometimes sometimes uh finals come in and, and we and and often a lot of times they're great they don't need to change it's just they need to be the the editors and, and publisher and authors like might need to sit with them for a little while because if they've seen the thumbs they filled it in in their heads and it's a little more amorphous than, than necessarily I do. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. So I, I was curious because, you know, we talked a little bit about, uh, about, you know, my two different Powder Mage series mm-hmm. and those covers. I was a little curious, where does the decision come from to go with, all right, let's do something that's photorealistic and kind of mm-hmm. graphically designed versus, all right, let's go with an artist and, and do like a landscape or a big city or, mm-hmm. or even let's just go with something way more abstract. That's just like a symbol on a sure. you know, on a clear background where does that decision kind of come from yeah it's um this is it's kind of part of the process question so when we start talking about an individual book it's part of the creative director's job art director's job creative director's job so the so to, to go quick in into like book hierarchy a creative director is kind of like the manager of the art department mm-hmm. and it's their job to uh, like it's my job to not only have make sure that orbit book covers are good, but they also look like orbit book covers. And that might mean something different from a tour book cover or a Del Rey book cover, you know, when we're talking sci-fi fantasy here, but obviously a little Brown book cover would be very different. Um, And it's your job to know what trends are out there and why, and not just in books, but especially in sci-fi fantasy, you have to know what's happening in movies. You have to know what's happening in, you know, comic books. You have to know what's happening all over media, you know, and, but the, but the short answer, so, so creative director has to know all that. And then we get a list of books every season. I mean, I kind of know about them as they're happening, but, but there comes a date and it's a, it's, we call it a launch meeting and the editors say, okay, this is what's in the season and let's talk about all the books in it. And they fill out this like fun like briefing form, which is really just to get the conversation started. Like what's the title? A lot of times we don't know, <laughs> you know, what's the author? Sometimes we don't know what the author name is either. You know, um, we, whatever minimal amount of information we can get, we have, and then we start talking about it. You know, is this, uh, what kind of, like, what subgenre is this? What kind of book is this? Like, it's enough to, it's not enough to say, oh, it's fantasy. Okay, is it epic fantasy? Is it politics and world building? Is it um, adventure fantasy? In which case, you know, it's more the story of one character, you know, going through, you know, an adventure. Um, is it, you know, borderline horror? Is it space opera? Like, what it, what subgenre is it? And then within that subgenre, we have to know what the trends are. So when Powder Mage came out, um, to use as an example, um, you know, Game of Thrones had just kind of come out. Uh, everything was looking very film, high drama, cinematic, you know, because um, if you think about 10 years ago, roughly, people were watching 
you know, sci-fi fantasy movies, but they weren't necessarily translating that to reading books. Yeah. Sci-fi fantasy books. So like the, you know, Marvel certainly wasn't as big as Marvel movies weren't as big as they were, but like the matrix had happened and the star Wars prequels had happened and things like that. So like geek quote unquote was going more mainstream or genre was going more mainstream, but it wasn't, it hadn't translated to books yet. And mm-hmm. game of Thrones was the first kind of property that, had a very, very close tie between the books and the media that was happening, the TV show. So um, fans got from the, the show to the books and then tore through the books very quickly and were looking for more. So like, what would we read next? You know, you'd read Powder Mage next. You'd read, you know, if you're looking for world building that's political and epic and all these things and a lot of stuff going on, um, maybe a little taste of history, you know, you'd go Powder Mage, you'd go, you know, Joe Abercrombie, you'd go like these, these authors. And to help those people who didn't know they were geek fans, really, to make that transition, we made things look a lot like movie posters yeah. and TV posters and and photographs. And that's why photographs were uh, very much a trend in that world. Successfully, we, tran- we, we made a lot of those sci-fi fantasy watchers into sci-fi fantasy readers. So by the time the second trilogy of yours came along, there was more recognition from those fans that, you know, they don't need to be convinced to read sci-fi fantasy anymore. Like we've already got them, you know, now we're just showing them bigger worlds and opening up, you know, um, you know, big vistas. So, so in that, in that world, you've got to like keep track of what the trends are in that, that place. Um, But also what the scope of the story is. So, you know, we tend to go, at least as things are right now, these things are like big, like, you know, continental plates shifting sometimes and causing like weird eruptions every once in a while, but they move very slowly and gradually, you know, but things that have like big politics and like world building and stuff tend to be symbols, you know, like a, a big sword, a big shield, a house flag, something like that, mm-hmm. or a big landscape. If, especially if it's a book with a journey, like, you know, um, you might have small characters in a big landscape or like sins of empire, you know, we wanted to really highlight how big this world was that you created. So we wanted to go big landscape, um, little characters, some drama lighting, you know, things that are more uh, one character's story, you know, you kind of show that character. So that's why you go for artists, uh, either the photographic treatment or you go for artists like Tommy Arnold, who really excel in like getting that one character cover across um, and getting a lot of, uh, you know, uh, personality across. I think if we, if we, if Promise of Blood had come out right now, I think the conversation would be, are we selling this as a big world political drama book or are we selling this as the story of that main character who who is on the cover of Promise of Blood? And I think that would mean, do we pick a, a landscape artist? Do we pick a character artist? Do we do we go with a symbol? Is there a symbol of, of that country or that character, you know, that, that we would use? So I don't know. That's a roundabout answer. <laughs> No, no. I, I think that that kind of look into the psychology of that is actually really yeah. interesting. I, um, you know, I, I think about what I would do differently if I was writing Promise of Blood right now, because yeah. oh, trends God, have changed a little kind of externally. Mm-hmm. I've changed as an author a bit, you know, like, and I kind of imagine that if I was having kind of the discussion on um, on Promise of Blood with an editor today, I probably would be talking about, okay, well, do we, do we, 
kind of uh, do we kind of you know, ramp up the politics a little bit more and make that a little bit more of a central thing, or do we ramp that down and try to go a little more sword and sorcery with it? You know, try to like you know kind of adjusting it slightly towards in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's important in my job, and I always keep track of as well is just where the culture at large is mm-hmm. so 10 years ago again you know what what movies were out like the matrix was out uh you know star wars prequels i mean it's more than 10 years ago that's 20 years ago whatever I'm yeah. um but the technology of cgi in movies especially was still very new and very exciting and everything was you know think about you know how people sold jurassic park you know, it was how real this looks. And uh, the culture at large was very in love with seeing imaginary things look as real as possible. And that's why on sci-fi fantasy book covers, we used a lot of folks that could make fantasy things that didn't really exist look real. Mm-hmm. And that's why the culture was so like it was a slicker kind of polish on things as slicker. If you look at advertising, if you look at liquor branding, if you look at food, if you look at restaurants, um, but over those 20 years, look around now, it's, I mean, who knows after the pandemic, but pre-pandemic, you know, <laughs> everything's in shift again. Um, but it was, it's all exposed. If you go to a restaurant, it's exposed brick, Edison bulbs, slow, multi-step cocktails, um, fashion, you know, heritage brands have come back. Everybody wants texture because we got to the pinnacle of slick CGI photorealism. And then we said, okay, we can do that. It looks great. We can't tell the difference, you know, and then think about when Mad Max Fury Road hit. Everybody I heard was like, oh, my God, it's so real looking. It's not, you know, they didn't do computer effects at all, which is a lie. If you actually look into uh, Mad Max Fury Road, there's a lot of computer effects. They just brought the texture back. And that's what our culture was. Uh, And again, I'm talking very, you know, European, Western world culture centric because that's where I publish. Um, But we we you know, our, our love affair with making things look hyper real kind of ended. And we just wanted some like texture back, like vinyl records came back. So it's, it's important for designers, especially creative director level to, to keep an eye on what's happening. So as that happened in the culture, I knew in advance that that was going to translate to more illustration in the world. Like if you look at advertising, there's a lot more illustration out there. There's a lot more movie posters that are illustrated. And I knew that was coming with books. And I had a very definite conversation with Tim, our publisher, you know, saying like, we need to start hiring more illustrators because this is what people are going to crave, you know? Um, and that's been, that's been true. You've got to be ahead of the arc, right? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm always working on books that are at least a year ahead, which means that your trend watching has to be like two to three years ahead. Oh man, <laughs> that's, I'm screwed right now. Cause I don't know what we're going to want coming out of the pandemic. Like <laughs> all the cards are up in the air. Right. Or when the pandemic's actually going to end. Right. Well, yeah, well, yes. Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's hope this Omicron wave is the last wave, please. Oh, fingers crossed. I'm so sick of my house. Uh-huh. <laughs> I want to go it's out true. again. It's true. I know. Cons, like, every once in a while pick up their heads. And, like, I heard World Fantasy this year is in New Orleans, which is one of my favorite cities on Earth. And I was like, are, are we going to have a con? Okay. Right. <laughs> like Right. I got I got an invitation to uh, France to a convention in France in May, and they and my the, my publisher is like, well, why don't we also do a book tour right here? We'll send you around the French countryside for two weeks for free. Oh, amazing! And I'm like, I want this so badly, but I also have no <laughs> idea what 
the pandemic's going to look like at the time. So I, that's what I told them. I think at this point, I think everybody's like planning, hopefully, but knowing that you can always fall back to virtual options. I think there's some very good things. Look, I'm not going to say the pandemic was good by any stretch of the imagination, but I think some good things will come out of it, which is, you know, that I don't think that there will ever be a world where we ditch virtual events. You know, you can just reach so many more people and things are so much more accessible um, you know, uh, fan bases and things can can have so much more interaction with with authors and the process and things like that. I, I don't think that'll ever go away. But yeah, I just miss seeing people in person. <laughs> so it'd be so nice. I um I was curious about um because I've got to imagine that this is I know I know it's a spot a, a spot of discussion among authors, and I got to imagine it is among uh, designers. Um, what is it? when you get a self-published uh, cover, mm-hmm. what is the biggest tip-off to you? What What is a, what is kind of a, what is a tip-off to you for a, a badly done self-published cover versus a well-done self-published cover? Well, this used to be a lot easier than, than it is now because um, I think the sci-fi fantasy self-publishing community has gotten much savvier. Yes. Uh, especially, I do a lot of arts outreach and, things in the sci-fi fantasy art community as well. And like, there's been a lot more connecting up the same artists that work on covers for me, you know, self-published authors can realize that like they can hire those people too, you know, Um, or if they can't hire them, they can hire like some of their mentees or some folks that are in the same line, but kind of Mm -hmm. a little greener, you know, Um, and a lot of artists, that's part of the, you know, kind of industry ladder that we, we teach artists, you know, do some book covers for either smaller presses, small published, uh, self-published authors, you know, you kind of get noticed, you get used to doing book covers, and then you kind of work up the chain. So it's not as easy as saying, well, in the old days, it used to be that self-published covers, you could see a mile away because the art was just not up to snuff. Because a lot of times, you know, like you know, the co- nowadays, you know, there are some artists that are working covers for me, and they're also working on covers for self-published authors. I think the giveaway is usually that self-published authors tend to try to do too much on their covers and it really shows in the art. It's like, you know, the 10 pounds mm. of 10 pounds of action and a five pound cover kind of, yeah. <laughs> that's the nice version. That's the <laughs> sanitary version of that saying. Um, they generally <laughs> try to, they try to do too much and uh, it really breaks down in the thumbnail, especially like if you're scrolling through, you know, any book site, um, book retail site, and you scroll through, unfortunately, you see that most of the realist, like most of what actually sells a cover is these teeny tiny thumbnails. Like if you're actually on the page of the book, the thumbnail is a little bigger, but that's not usually, that's not the browsing. That's not how people trip over your book. It's that like also viewed or like also recommended bar, depending upon which site you're on. And that's what catches people. And it's a big part of my job to always be looking at these book covers in thumbnail. We always look on at covers on screens. We don't print out printouts anymore. We we look at covers on screen, especially in remote. Obviously, that's easy. But we were doing that. Orbit was doing that before. Um, we always look at covers on screens. We look at them very small, and we see how those tra- that translates um, to the viewer's eye and um, what's sticky and what's not. And the more muddy a composition is the um the tougher it is to see what's going on and for that for your eye to get caught by it and i and and it's not about legibility it's not necessarily your eye needs to know exactly what's going on in that image it's just advertising has done a lot of of research and we piggyback on them a lot because they have all the money um but there's a (laughs) lot of of tried and true things that the human eye catches on 
Yeah. It's contrast. It's uh, strong silhouettes. It's, you know, saturation. So I'm looking at, at the visual, and we call that visual hierarchy. Um, and, you know, what, what, what does the viewer's eye catch on first? And then second, and then third. And the, the shape that that pattern makes as you go from visual point to focal point to focal point um, imbues uh, emotion subconsciously, uh, the same way that fonts imbue emotion subconsciously. Um, so I think that it's just, you know, are there great covers out in self-publishing? Yes, especially for those authors that are hiring the same artists. Um, but the design is usually lacking because there's not that it, it, experience of uh kind of layout and type and design knowledge um you can hire the illustrator it's very rare that a self-published artist is going to have the money to hire the professional illustrator and then the professional designer and an art director you know some people can and do um but that's that's a lot of levels of of money like you said it takes a team so it's rare that a self-published author can hire a team they might hire a great person, but even the artists that I work with, you know, you can hire a Tommy Arnold yeah. to do your self-published cover, but Tommy Arnold doesn't know how to do type. He'll, he'll put type on it. It'll look pretty good. Um, but he's not looking at the same things that we are because he's a painter and he's focused on that. Now time is going to yell at me because he actually does care about design, but <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I, I, I remember doing my first uh, little self-published Powder Mage novella. And I, I had found an artist I really liked. I'd emailed tons of people trying to get an idea for prices and everything. I found somebody that I liked and was in my price range. And uh, and I remember them coming back to me once we had kind of agreed mm -hmm. on a timeline and all that. And them saying, okay, what do you want? And then I just froze. I was like, oh, shit, aren't you supposed to do that? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, wait, I have to be an art director now. Oh, this yeah. is terrible. I have no skills in this. Right. And then also, like, I think... I, it depends on the artist. Um, and it also, this is, I know a question that came up on Twitter. People were asking like, how much of the book do you read? You can't really ask an artist to read your whole book and then come up with ideas for the cover. And then, you know, do that, do all of that work process. Cause that's hours and hours and hours of work. Yeah. Um, just before you even get to the sketching part, there are some artists that I work with that really do just want to read the book and have a go at ideas. Um, you know, with the understanding that by the time I hire an artist, we don't, pick artists until we know if it's going to be a character or a landscaper because it's all different people. Mm -hmm. um, so we already know we're coming to this artist for this thing or that artist for that thing. And there's some like, I call them problem solvers. Like, I don't know what I want, but I'm going to give it to Sam Weber and he's going to read the book and he's going to come up with something genius and he can do characters and he can do still life and he can do landscape. He can do everything. So like, if I'm screwed, you know, you can call in somebody like that who bless him is worth his weight in gold. Um, yeah. Artists like that, like, you know, um, self-published authors are never going to be able to touch because we just pay, we pay them. They're too well paid. Right. Yeah. You know, like we haven't booked up the second any of those, that level artist has a opening. So you have to, as a author, that whole conversation we had about whether it should be a landscape or whether it should be, you know, an icon or whether it should be a, a character, you know, that's something that I don't necessarily know that a self-published author would know to think about in that way. And, and not that you can't break that, uh, you know, um, that pattern, but, you know, fans expect a certain thing from the book that they see the cover for. And you kind of want to generally line up those things properly or else people are, you know, it's not going to find the audience that is going to be most receptive to the book. So there's always this push pull between the fan base, especially in any genre publishing, but sci-fi fantasy for sure. There's this push pull between what the fan base wants and expects and what, 
you want to push ahead. Like Orbit and, and, you know, Tim, the publisher, and I have always been on the same mind of we want to push the envelope a little bit. We don't want to just do what's safe. We want to kind of break new ground and always kind of be pushing ahead and try to like forecast those trends a little bit. And if we fail, we want to fail forward. We want to fail from like reaching too far, not from playing it too safe. So um, there have been times that we've missed the mark and I mean, I'm not going to name names here, but there are some covers that just haven't worked and we've either repackaged them or, you know, thank God for an omnibus. You always get a second shot, you know, that kind of thing. Um, That's a lot for a self-published author to know and internalize. And I mean, maybe, you know, podcasts, certainly social media conversations help. And I think that's why self-published covers have gotten so much better but I think that idea of like, you really do need a team, you know, to traditional, you're getting a team in traditional publishing. Um, that being said, what one of the things I really love about Orbit is, you know, we have so many uh, series that started as self-published series. And, um, you know, we've kind of like found, the editors have found, have been like, this is great. We're going to publish this and just buy it, republish the first one and continue the series. I mean, Evan Winter's Rage of Dragons is a great example of that. And Evan Winter had um, a great self-published cover. Really great. I feel bad that I cannot remember the name of the artist that did the original self-published piece, uh, but it was a scene and it was a dragon and it was um, characters in a whole scene. So there were like three or four characters and a dragon and a lot of fire and and a type. That cover was great for a self-published cover, but we had to have that conversation in house about, you know, this is a big story. It's epic. We want people who see this book not to just think it's kind of like a little adventure story. We want this to feel like world building and gigantic and just so much politics and so much thought going on. So we really went that like more iconic, you know, symbol kind of cover. Yeah. Uh, it's a shield, but we, it was also very important that it was, um, again, it's fantasy worlds, but it felt African you know, because that was the, the inspiration for the world. So, you know, you get into a whole parallel conversation about what artists can do this well, um, whether that's a BIPOC artist or not, or things like that, you know, like who's out there in the pool, who's doing these things well. Um, we ended up working with Carla Ortiz for that cover, who who usually specializes in characters. Um, and through the process, uh, we ended up at this like kind of mirror, like that melded together. It's a big symbol in front with like weaponry. Uh, mm-hmm. But then this beautiful carving freeze kind of uh, relief behind. And that's why we went for Carla. because She's really good at that and, you know, kind of repackaged it. But it, but again, we didn't repackage it because the self-published cover wasn't good art. It was. Um, but we just had other goals and we kind of felt like it could be bigger. Yeah. You guys are asking different questions and, and kind of working towards different goals, yeah. which I find kind of fascinating is you touched upon it a bit is just that experience to know the right questions to ask and to know the right goals to work towards. And like you said, you, sometimes you miss. That's that's any professional any professional creative thing ever sometimes misses, even mm-hmm. the best ones. Yeah. And and it's just because it is it's subjective and and it it does remain subjective all the way through and I it's it's kind of a I'm just I mean I kind of go back to this on on the podcast all the time is this meeting of business and art Mm -hmm. and how you have to juggle that to really be a successful artist of any kind in kind of today's world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it always goes back to the target audience. And I think those are the conversations that we're Mm -hmm. obsessing about uh, in-house. And I think, you know, the more that it's not just self-published, I think like people always think about like self-published authors versus traditionally published authors. And it's so much more of a spectrum now because 
even authors that I work with, like you were saying, like, you know, you were traditionally published, you were also self-publishing things. Um, even authors that, uh, you know, authors are so much more savvy now. It's great. Um, you know, Tasha Suri, who we've, we've done some series with now, is also hiring artists to do book plates and to have, you know, renditions of her characters that are different. And then sometimes we do, we, I mean, there have been times that an author has found um, an artist that they really liked uh, to do like book plates or stuff just for them for like their author marketing. And then we've been like, that's really cool. And then relicensed it to use, you know, so it's, it's this give and take and push and pull. And I love authors. You know, I really like having dialogue back and forth with my authors. You know, when an author sends me a Pinterest page or like artists that they like all of these things, you know, sometimes we might not use them, Mm -hmm. but it's always nice to know where their head is and what they're thinking. And, you know, they've spent so much more time in the world of this book than I have. So any information, especially in sci-fi fantasy, it's not like I could go to the encyclopedia and look stuff up. You know, the author is the only reference for what's actually in the world that they created. So I love hearing about that from them. Like, you know, especially folks that get into like dream casting their book and stuff. I'm like, give it to me. Let me know. Like, even if we're not using a cover on the, a character on the cover, I want to, I want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I definitely, I remember my very first, conversation with Davy about art was essentially that she was like just throw ideas at me tell me what you are envisioning and so i did i just kind of chucked a bunch of kind of visual inspiration at her and and then she probably took that and probably just she just chucked it right at me chucked it right at you right (laughs) i actually um i'm very proud of this uh that i pitched almost exactly the cover they ended up using for in the shadow of lightning for my next my new tour book um and i i'm really proud of that that they thought that the pitch was good enough just kind of randomly that they're like okay let's let's do that and i'm like holy crap you actually like that well you've been around you've been around the band a couple times it's not like you haven't picked up anything along the way (laughs) a little bit (laughs) (laughs) just just a tiny bit It is kind of funny how you kind of you do learn a bit about kind of these kind of the, these industries that touch upon yours by necessity, right? You kind of have to learn how they work. Oh yeah, you have to. And the difficult thing about art, whether it's written or whether it's visual, but but, but visual happens faster. Mm-hmm. It's only half what you do. The other half is what the person who's seeing it responds to yeah you know um so people see things in my covers or our covers all the time that we didn't mean to put there necessarily or we didn't consciously put there but are there for people to see and it's not my place to say oh no that's not there you know it's the same conversation we have in fine art all the time you know you walk into a gallery uh you see this piece um you know whether it's contemporary art or historical uh you know your response to it as a viewer is as valid as what the artist meant to do. And that happens in, in publishing also. I mean, how famous was Tolkien for saying that his, his Lord of the Rings had nothing to do with World War One and Two? You know, like, hey, come on. Dude. Yeah. Like, maybe you didn't consciously put it in there, but like, you it's, can't really. It's there. Come on. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, you can't say, and I think that, you know, we could, this is a whole other podcast, but, um, right. <laughs> but, uh, quickly like I don't I think it's the part of and when I say artist like I think an author is an artist I think I hate the word like creator it's become such a like a buzzy word you know it's like (laughs) advertising guys say creators um 
but like artists and authors, whoever is creating something, you know, new, uh, whether it's visual or not, musicians, dance, any medium, whatever the medium is, you're reaching down. And this this will show my like very intense readings of years of reading Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. But yeah. you reach down through yourself, through your conscious mind, into your subconscious, down through your unconscious, and you end up absorbing a bunch of shit from the collective unconscious and pulling it back up through you into your conscious creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't control all of that, you know, you know, you may be conscious of more or less of what's going on within you, but every artist, every creator is a conduit to what's going out on in the collective unconscious or the bigger culture, whatever words you want for it. And we're absorbing that and we're, we're pulling it through our work. And, and, you know, it's not really, artist's place or even author's place to say like what they meant to be in the book is what's in, you know, only what can be in the book. Cause that's, it's, I don't, it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. There's so much subconscious that goes into creating something that, that I, I try to always be like, uh, I try to always respond to something that I didn't really see uh, by just saying, that's not kind of how I envisioned it, but yeah, I see what you're saying now. Like, yeah, absolutely. like when it's fed back to me, I can, I can usually totally get what they're talking about, but oftentimes it's not until that's bounced back towards me that I'll even realize that something's there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And a lot of artists and authors re- reject kind of more violently that alternate reading because it kind of almost makes them think too hard about the process. And then it starts, you know, like it's kind of almost like the the watched pot like can't create you know like if you if you look at the if you're looking at the right. too much of the what goes into the sausage you can't make the sausage anymore i don't know i no i but, i definitely run into that i in fact i i've run into that lately like I, I i was having this philosophical discussion with a friend recently because i had this i had this kind of block in a in an action scene that i was going to make that i was going to write and and i i was talking to a friend about like how do you how do you kind of develop as a human being and and learn to understand complex morality a little bit, but then still look at Han Solo mowing down stormtroopers as the hero? He's just killed 30 people that we don't know anything about. Um, you know, maybe there were interns in there. Like, I don't know. And like, <laughs> so how do you kind of yeah. like run into that? And kind of what I came out of that conversation with was, look, I'm writing silly adventure books and I I got to peel back a little bit on that. I can't yeah. like, it's interesting to get older and want to play with more complex emotions and more complex morality and that kind of thing. But also there's some times where I just need my main character to just wipe out a room and have it be awesome. And that's what a reader wants. Yeah. And I think that, um, look, there's all kinds of levels of, of what we create and what we write. Um, yeah there's escapist and and all these things can exist in the same piece of work there's escapist levels there's um you know metaphorical levels there's you know social commentary levels you know uh there's nothing wrong with a you know people call it a guilty pleasure and i i don't like that term because i'm never guilty about it you know i'm like yeah working in the genre i work in but there there are times that i mean we're in a pandemic literally all of the media i've been binging is escapism you know, yeah. you need it to survive. Sometimes that is a very noble pursuit. And then sometimes, I mean, one of the things that's kept me, even though I, I obviously was already a fan of sci-fi fantasy and, and came to working in sci-fi fantasy as both a fan and a professional, 
I have stayed this long and I never get sick of it because I really deeply believe um, that, and, and this can get this again, I feel like we could shoot off like seven podcast episodes. <laughs> yeah. But I think that in our, in our society today, and again, centering myself in like Western European kind of culture, um, mythology is happening in sci-fi fantasy and uh, morality comes out of mythology and, you know, religious people, you know, have their sphere and whether you're religious or not, but you know, that that's a whole different conversation, but for the culture at large and the greatest part of culture, all of the mythology is happening in sci-fi fantasy. It's happening in comic books. It's happening in sci-fi fantasy movies. You know, you look at something like, and that's why representation is so important. You know, a whole generation of kids, like I grew up a girl in love with a genre that didn't have a lot of space for girls. You know, we were Princess Leia, you know, like things like that. I never identified with Princess Leia. Like I'm glad Princess Leia was there. She was cool. Um, especially compared to a lot of like trophy princesses and things. But but I identified with Luke, you know, um, and I, as a woman in sci-fi fantasy growing up when I did, I didn't have a problem fitting myself into male depictions. And I didn't really realize until much later that there weren't a lot of girls that in, in my genre that I identified with. I think that, that uh, it was, it's been very important to see better depictions of women, um, you know, in, in sci-fi fantasy movies, like, you know, the Wonder Woman movie and the Black Widow movie, you know, touched me in a way that just seeing like a, like a girl's point of view, a woman director, a woman superhero, like taking that stage yeah. meant more to me than I thought it would. Cause I thought I was kind of over that. And um, I know the same thing is happening with a movie like Black Panther. It's happening with all the wonderful representative queer sci-fi fantasy that is happening. Um, you know, like I was so tickled pink by the whole sapphic trifecta, trifecta hashtag. I don't know if you saw that went by with. Um, I didn't, I didn't. Just by chance, um, Jasmine, Tasha Suri's Jasmine Throne, C.L. Clark's The Unforgiven, and She Who Became the Sun. I'm saying the story wrong. Anyway, um, they all ended, they're all queer. They're all sapphic, yeah. you know, kind of sci-fi fantasy, fantasy uh, stories with, you know, they're not about, they're not romance books. They're, they're sci-fi fans, but they have some, you know, uh, sapphic romantic plots in them. And they all ended up having like the same kind of color tone of the cover. So they're saffron kind of color. So it's like the sapphic saffron, like trifecta. That's, like, very funny. <laughs> so like, I love it when those moments happen. And I love that we're in a place in sci-fi fantasy where the representation just keeps getting uh, wider and wider. You know, maybe it doesn't happen as, as, as quickly as we all want it to change or not. but. Um, you know, and I, and that's what I love about Orbit books too. Like I've, I've been able to stay there because for so long and not get bored because we're always kind of trying to push new grounds and covers and visuals, but we're also trying to push new ground and, you know, the, the kinds of books that the authors buy. Like, I just, I love that about Orbit. And, and that's why, you know, people are like, wow, even there 13 years, are you not sick of big swords on a cover yet? I'm like, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> well, and it's, it's funny. Cause like, as a, you know, as a white dude, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of get that. And then, but the moment that I, that I understood it was when somebody said to me, or, or maybe I was just reading an article or something, but it was, it was some, something that said people, kids want to be able to see themselves on a cover or as the hero or doing this, this. And that just made so much sense mm -hmm. to me because, you know, as a little kid, 
epic fantasy, the the the, the young white farm boy, right? Yeah. Like yeah, that yeah. was my whole growing up, and I could understand that. Of oh yeah, that was very formative to me. I could it was easy to self insert. Like I was able to love it really easily and understand it really easily, and and mm-hmm. and then I, I was kind of able to get that. And it was interesting because I, I had a great conversation on this podcast with Joe Abercrombie about kind of both of us kind of leading into our careers with very, uh, I think he put it, blokey sort of books. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I can see him saying that. <laughs> yeah. And and it was that kind of you kind of lead into that because you because that's what you get, you know, as the posi- the place we both kind of came from. But then we talked a bit about this uh, kind of trying to learn as an author and realize, okay, my personal experience, that's a great place to start your career, but it's good. You want to spread out from there. You want things to be more inclusive and more interesting and more, I don't know. I, I get, I I roll my eyes at people who roll their eyes at inclusivity just because inclusivity is interesting. Mm -hmm. More variety is interesting. That's just life. And I, I, it's, I don't know. It's 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 kind of a. I, I realize that it is not a conversation that has as much depth for me as it does for m- a lot of other people. But I still I try to find some depth in that and yeah. and try to see what's try to try to look past that kind of because because you get kind of this. I don't know. There's almost this sort of this gut instinct to sp- when you're kind of in the position I am where you kind of want to scoff at it. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a, it's a horrible gut instinct, but it's very real. And and getting past that and saying, no, no, this is all very important. And it makes everything I do better and more interesting. I think that's very important. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's tough. Um, this definitely affects covers and I'll bring that up in a second. Yeah. But I see it in fandom a lot uh i see it in some authors but again a lot of authors like uh you know white guy authors do want to kind of widen their their inclusivity and voice and again not for pc reasons or you know because the pc police are watching but because you know it really does make their work better and also they have maybe started their career writing books as joe would say and and you want to keep growing as an artist um and, and trying on different points of view and different experiences and things. Um, and I think that's, that's really admirable. And I think um, these are controversial topics. Um, yes. And, and I think uh, I want to be really careful to not leave anybody else, leave anybody out of the conversation or, um, you know, say anything that can be misinterpreted, which is impossible. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's the world. Everything will be misinterpreted at some point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the world. Um, I think it's very important that own voices exist. I think that's really, really important. Um, and I think people really do. We need to hear trans stories from trans people. We need to hear BIPOC stories from BIPOC people. We need to hear sapphic stories from sapphic people and so on and so on and so forth. But it has to be, you can't just say that you can only write your own experience. That's not what art is. That's not what creation is. And I think that all kinds of people should feel uh, empowered to write with the right respect and research, because that's really the most important thing. Should be able to write characters of all kinds of, of, of background and history and things like that. And I think that people are, are understandably, especially the way kind of social media has been, are scared, a little scared to do that. And I, and I worry about that, that it's actually going to do harm to, you know, people feeling free to write diverse characters. And I think if you're doing it with um, the utmost of respect and representation and you do things 
to like, you know, uh, find sensitivity readers or check in with people that have that experience and make sure you're being as true to it as possible. I think that that's, that's really important. You know, um, it, it affects covers a lot. Uh, and, and I hear what you're saying about, you know, being a white farm boy, <laughs> you know, your words, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, being a white farm boy and, and not having had to stretch yourself to fit into the media. And that's what I was talking about before. Um, that muscle that, that you uh, kind of exert to fit yourself, contort yourself into a character that doesn't exactly fit you um, is something that in sci-fi fantasy specifically, women have o- always had to do. Uh, less so now, but again, uh, BIPOC folks have absolutely always had to do. Yeah. Um, so the more you've had to queer folks, you know, all gender, you know, representations, um, the more you do it kind of almost the less you notice it, it doesn't feel like a big deal. Um, so a lot of these conversations where I think a white guy, uh, feels uncomfortable being forced to do that. Um, it's just because that muscle has never had to be used as much. They've never been asked to use that kind of, to practice it. Yeah. And it feels uncomfortable. It does. Um, and I forget yeah. again, like I said before, like I forget how uncomfortable it felt cause I'm so used to it. Like, again, like I was five when I saw Return of the Jedi, I have been, Luke in that black costume with the green lightsaber. My hair is the color of Luke's green lightsaber. Like it's, it's in my DNA, you know, like it's never getting out. Um, I didn't even realize how, like we experience it as more, I fit into a female point of view more smoothly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not, not, you know, there's no you know rubber stamp just because a woman wrote doesn't mean I necessarily or created. It doesn't mean I necessarily fit into it more, more seamlessly because there's all kinds of expressions, but yeah. Um, I think I think when again white farm boys are asked to stretch into a different role that they haven't considered before and they haven't had to stretch into whether it's you know um, heterosexuality or race or gender expression or any of or age or any of those things um, it it feels weird and that friction of it feeling weird um, turns off a lot of people yeah. uh, and I think that if you just kind of push through and and get used to it, it it's just a muscle that loosens up and and you are you're able to accept and adapt to all these this wider world of literature and stories and visuals and all kinds of things but i think the first couple of times you you're forced to do it if you haven't been forced to do it your whole life it feels weird and it feels awkward and you don't like it and i don't i don't blame you we don't like it either <laughs> yeah. right but i i do i think it's almost um i i don't want to like yeah like it, it it's hard to it's hard to, I don't want this to sound minimalizing or anything, but I, I feel like it's important for everybody to learn that so that we can all learn to be, yeah, yeah, absolutely. we can all learn to live together nicely with people that aren't like us, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Ideally, we would all be forced to try it instead of some of us being forced to do it and some of us have, getting to choose to do it. Ideally, right. It's but, it's like yeah. that, like, like people saying that everybody should have to work in, in retail once in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, like, yeah. because then, you know, what the person on the other side of your angriness, they don't have the right size of shoe, you know, yeah. like, it feels like yeah, what it feels like. Right. And, and it's, well, our culture is not big on empathy. It's really you know, not. <laughs> <laughs> a, little t- a little short supply. I mean, the more, I mean, Unfortunately, the more, and you see it in, in social media and the, the, you know, how much more kind of vicious online, online life has felt, especially for, I think, creators. Um, lately, it, it, you know, the last couple of years, the more stressed you are, the more scared you are, the more uh, scarce resources feel, the more um, just 
tired, exhausted, burnt out, stressed you are, the less empathy you have access to. Yeah. So it's understandable. You know, um, I think, you know, that's when, when as a creator, especially you need to take a break and unplug and recharge in whatever way, you know, you recharge and, and maybe step away from the Twitter for a little (laughs) while, you know, using social media. I mean, look in a perfect world, I would love it if people use social media when they felt good, not when they felt shitty. (laughs) But, you know, right. You know, so Twitter's right. not your more, therapist. More, your more cat pictures and, and fewer, uh, fewer screaming rants. Yeah, sure. Ideally. But it's also a privilege because, um, you know, some people don't, I look, Hey, I'm in therapy every week and I, it's a privilege to be able to afford that or to have a job that, that with benefits that support that. And not everybody has access to therapy. Not everybody has access to, uh, working one job, you know, in a house with a cat and no children, um, you know, so I, I, right. it's hard to, you know, it's easy for me to say like, Hey, get off the Twitter when you're upset, but, um, you know, not everybody, not everybody has healthy outlets. You know? Right. Oftentimes that's the only outlet they feel they can use, you know, mm-hmm. even if that's yeah. not true, it can feel that way. Absolutely. And if you've, you know, if you're, if you don't have an outlet where people are listening to you in other places, the internet listening to you is a is a feels like a really good substitute yeah which which isn't uh which can be really nice occasionally and uh but but i don't know if it's healthy on a long-term basis i don't know i mean these are things we're working out as a culture very slowly over a long term (laughs) it it really is like i mean if you took twitter and and magicked it back to the roman empire can you even imagine like what 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 just if you if you took everybody in 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 a, in an ancient civilization and then let them talk to each other suddenly like oh my gosh could you even imagine the chaos i mean it probably looks very much like what ancient history twitter looks like right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> 10,000 trolls taking on merry beard on a daily basis. <laughs> like oh my, oh my goodness um, except uh, it would be lions, not trolls in the form. Right. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, but this affects covers and, and I know we got, and I was joking with, um, Aiden who used to do a dribble of ink, uh, blog, uh, you know, about guys in cloaks, guys in hoods yes. and guys in cloaks and covers. Um, and, and, and I didn't want to sidestep this conversation, but it's very much, um, related to this in that the reason that dudes in cloaks with hoods, um, are were are still they are popular every time you put them on a cover and there's mm-hmm. a reason um it's not a guy in a cloak it's a person who is whose identity is obscured and the more that you obscure someone's identity the easier it is for someone to insert themselves into that character. Uh, that makes total sense um so you know we've done things like characters from the back and you know because i got sick of guys in hoods you know pretty quickly yeah so you're so you know you're saying like okay why is this popular and why is it specifically popular in adult sci-fi fantasy and not as big a deal in YA fantasy or you know other other subgenres and it's exactly what we're talking about in that white farm boys I'm gonna keep using the term I'm gonna get in trouble somehow but you said it first so go after Brian everybody just um, just blame me it's okay um have not developed the muscle to fit themselves into uh characters that look too different from them even if it's another white guy so the more you can obscure the identity of that character, the easier it is for someone to identify with that character. Yeah, the broader audience that can imprint upon it, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, it is 
completely understandable why that is more important in adult traditional big book epic fantasy sci-fi fantasy than it is in necessarily um YA which mm-hmm. is overwhelmingly female readers uh you know if you look at the actual data it's usually you know not YA age female readers but you know that's the you know you can pour over the data forever um you know, as opposed to, and there are many, 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 and the numbers go back and forth depending on who's doing the study, uh, female audience in adult sci-fi fantasy, huge. You know, there's not a good word for quote unquote everybody, but cisgender white dudes. Yeah. Uh, but but everybody but that um, in, in traditional sci-fi fantasy, but we're so used to inserting ourselves into other characters that, you know, it doesn't matter if it's uh, many times, it doesn't matter if it's a guy on the cover, a girl on the cover, whatever, like we're we're into it. Um, I, but you know, you put, uh, you put, a, a anyone on the cover again, you know, the, the, the people who are least used to flexing their identity to fit into a character have the hardest time with it visually. So, yeah. um, so that's why that continues to be very popular. It's just a very easy thing to swallow in covers. Um, and, uh, I'm glad that it, we've kind of moved on to some other things with characters, but if you look at, character covers um you know it, it it's tough because you really have to look at the the target audience and you don't want to alienate anyone yeah so you end up catering to the to the audience that uh is the least flexible yeah i know i don't want to i don't want to beat up on white guy readers you know but i i absolutely i absolutely understand what you're talking about though it it, it does make sense it's a it's it's this it's a funny little kind of um psychological game that anybody that is producing for a broad audience has to play with themselves and with mm-hmm. the art that they're working on it's the same thing that hollywood deals with with like big action movie stars mm-hmm. you know um the tom hardy's the keanu reeves the you know blanking on other dudes right now uh right the matt damon's you know um the folks that are in those big tentpole action sci-fi movies tend to be the person that the widest audience can easily insert themselves into hero wise. And I had this conversation with my boyfriend when we were watching black widow, which he liked, he enjoyed. Um, and my, my, my boyfriend currently is a white cis dude. Um, and, uh, he was like, oh, I didn't like it. That one. It was fine. Um, and I was, and I loved it. Like I loved the banter. I love, you know, I loved a lot of it and I'm not saying it's a perfect movie, but I really enjoyed it. And, um, and he was like, oh, you know, this didn't ring true for me. I'm like, yeah, it rang really true for me as being like, there were three women around that dinner table talking to each other. And like, I got all, you know, and, and he was like, oh, it just wasn't well done. And I'm like, no, it's not that it wasn't well done. It wasn't made for you. Yeah. It wasn't catered to your specific experience. So it feels wrong. And, you know, we had a very interesting, I mean, he's obviously an open-minded guy. We had a very interesting conversation, but even a guy who, you know, um, you know, identifies as a feminist and is clearly not small-minded and, you know, I'm not going to go into the issue of my boyfriend's background, but um, even, even then it was, it was uncomfortable for him to, to realize that something wasn't made for him. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we, we run up on that a lot in sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It was, it was funny because I watched that film and I actually, Interestingly, I took away from it that like, like the character of Red Guardian made so much sense to me because I Mm -hmm. am experienced with that type of person very much. Mm -hmm. So kind of an older past their prime, totally having a mental breakdown, but doesn't know it 
sort of per, a, a, an older white dude. Like I, yeah. I know people like that. Like it made yeah. absolute sense and, you know, kind of lovable, but also a total asshole, you know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, it fit perfectly to me. I got it like immediately. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no. I, and I think, again, I think being forced out of your, your, the easy automatic you know, alignments is good for people. Um, I think it's also really, really important that we don't, we continue to push the representation folder forward because I mean, look on the business level, it is very commercially viable. Thank God we finally put that, you know, baby to bed um, about, you know, for so long I was hearing like, we can't have a superhero fronted, you know, woman fronted superhero movie because of Catwoman. No, Catwoman was a terrible movie. Like <laughs> nothing to do being a woman um anyway um but like you know representation sells because there's such a wider audience out there that's been begging for these characters but also just on the ground it's 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 just gonna make the genre better like you said whether it's visuals or it's it's writing like the more uh varied point of views and experiences it just opens up the the the, the palette you know for for creation like the sandbox that you get to play in you know, again, as long as you're being, you know, we, we have to be careful in covers a lot, especially in sci-fi fantasy that we're not uh, being, you know, culturally appropriative. Yeah. You know, because so many fantasy worlds are built heavily influenced by real world cultures. And you have to be careful there that if you are referencing a certain culture, you're doing it consciously, uh, respectfully, you know, you're not just grabbing stuff kind of willy nilly. Um, and you, you're sure as hell. I mean, as a white lady, like there's been a lot of covers that I've absolutely 100% checked in with experts in certain cultures and been like, are, are we good here? Are we, what can we do better? You know, like I think just, you know, realizing that, you know, the, the sci-fi fantasy art community realizing that you really can't just like pick and choose, grab pieces of, of random cultural background, and, yeah. you know, um, mash them together and, and say, it's, it's just, it's fine. It's not always okay. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I think that's the difference between like cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation. I think people get stuck on that. I think it's, it's just how much research you do, honestly, at the end of the day. Well, and how much you're taking, you know, like mm-hmm. it's. And crediting. Yeah. And, and there's a difference between doing, cause I, I don't know. I part one of the reasons I really like sticking with secondary world is because I am able to pick from a lot of different places for my inspiration Mm -hmm. and try to kind of mix it up and mash things together and play with it. Um, But also I I try to be conscious of like, not just plopping an entire historical civilization into my world and then calling it a different name. Like, because then that's where you run into the problems is like, Oh, this is very obviously X and you've done it all very poorly. Yeah. When I think, I mean, it's fun to do research. I'm a research nerd. And I most, honestly, most world building fantasy authors and artists I know are research nerds. So it's just an excuse to do deeper, better research. Well, I will put a plug in if, if you are, I know Mm -hmm. some artists ask questions. If you are an artist and you're looking for answers to, you know, questions about fantasy art and things like that, follow the Muddy Colors blog, uh, which is great blog that I write for, but a lot of uh, sci-fi fantasy artists write for, and a lot of sci-fi fantasy artists and authors write for, you know, follow and things. That is a fantastic resource. So I, I, I like to finish up these podcasts with a very simple question uh, that totally goes down left field. 
which is, uh, what's the last food you ate that blew your mind? Oh, this used to be so much easier <laughs> when I was leaving the house. Well, yeah, when you went to restaurants. Oh, the last thing that blew my mind. This is sad. Um, what, what's the what's the, the last thing that you're still thinking about? You might might maybe you'll get it next week. Maybe it's just in the back of the mind somewhere. Yeah. Well, I'm very spoiled living in Brooklyn. Um, there is the the last meal. I snuck out of pandemic in like April mm -hmm. 2020 to go to one restaurant. Um, my friends uh, have restored, friends of mine have restored a 1880s restaurant in Brooklyn whose landmark interior is still intact called Gage and Tolner. Um, and they, they went super history nerd with it and they went back to the original tin ceilings and, and the lighting and everything. And um, it was a old school, like kind of civil war era, like, so, you know, afterwards uh, era like chop house so like oysters and steaks and all those things and and they've done like yeah such a beautiful job bringing back both uh, the menu and modernizing it and then bringing back the interior and it's such a great team and it was supposed to open i had reservations for march 13th 2020 oh no <laughs> which got canceled <laughs> the pandemic coming down was our opening weekend so they survived a whole year to reopen and that's what i went and it was like the best day you just can't cook a, a, like a a steakhouse steak at home. Yeah. Like your, your oven doesn't get hot enough. So that, um, sorry, vegetarians. That's, that's what I'm still thinking about. And the second that it's safe to get out, <laughs> that's where I'm going. Oh, uh, that sounds awesome. See, I love that. I love so, that. I feel like I haven't really done enough of that restaurant as both food and experience. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way I was raised, you know, it, it just, but I, I, I do love it. It's very fun. Well, next time you come to New York, you have to go to Gage and Tolner because it's, I will, I would definitely do Incredible. That. Fantastic. That was designer Lauren Panapinto. Thanks again to Lauren for taking the time to chat. You can find links to her website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website, or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Glenn with an extra N, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.